This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin this podcast with the border. Historian Mirna Santiago and immigrants' rights specialist Alicia Rusoja report on their week at the border where they talked to men, women, and children migrants, sat in immigration court, talked to support groups, as well as deported veterans and deported mothers of dreamers in Tijuana. We'll get their reflections and revelations that include the way abuse and corruption are adding to the horrors these migrants face. Then Daniel Finn joins us with his analysis of British politics. While the Tories are deciding whether Boris Johnson will be their next leader, he probably will be, the Labor Party has its own dilemmas over its attitude to Brexit for sure, but also how to deal with the surprisingly effective smear campaign against Labor's left-wing leadership, in particular Jeremy Corbyn. Daniel looks at the underlying controversy and states in his recent Jacobin article that despite Corbyn's unprecedented effort to expel anti-Semites from party ranks, no such similar move in the Conservative Party, Corbyn's critics will never be satisfied since their issue is Corbyn's politics itself. This has great relevance for our own politics and Daniel Finn, who also has an article on Corbyn labor and the Brexit crisis in the July-August New Left Review, will explain. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Well, this week in politics has been ugly, with Trump openly stoking fear, xenophobia, and racism in his 2020 re-election bid, and singling out the left of the Democratic Party, especially the four women of color known as the Squad. And we can only wait to see if racism and send her back chance becomes the campaign mantra. But even more, This week, we saw Democratic legislators, especially Elijah Cummings, hold Kevin McAleenan, the acting secretary of Homeland Security, being held accountable for the horrid treatment of migrants, especially children, in often privately run migrant detention centers in hearings that were held on Thursday. As we've documented right here on this show, children are continuing to be separated from their parents and held in dehumanizing conditions. Republicans, for their part, blame the Democrats for a funding crisis. Well, we're going to talk to Mirna Santiago and Alicia Rusoja. They're both just back from a week at the border, and they spent time talking to the migrants themselves, men, women, and children, and also deported veterans and deported mothers of dreamers in Tijuana, as well as sitting in immigration court and talking to support groups and so much more. So we're going to get their reflections. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Mirna Santiago and Alicia Rusoja. Thank you, Susie. It's good to be on. So good to talk to both of you. And I know you packed a lot into your week. So there's going to be a lot for us to get into. Let me first just introduce you. Mirna Santiago is a professor teaching Latin American history, and she's the director of the Women and Gender Studies program at St. Mary's College of California, where I also teach disclosure. Her research focuses on environmental history and specifically the oil industry in Mexico, and she's working on a history of the 1972 earthquake that destroyed Managua, Nicaragua. And Alicia Rusoja teaches immigrant rights and social justice at St. Mary's College. Her research focuses on the intergenerational literacy, teaching, and learning practices that for Latino and Latina 
immigrants, you know, as they first are organizing in the face of unprecedented legal violence by the U.S. government. And I'm really pleased to hear from you both. But let's just get started right away. Mirna, maybe you can start out by your take on the cruelty of the current policies, given that you've been going back and forth now five different times in the last three years. Yes, Probably, I would say that is the success of the policies that this White House has been implementing. And we have to remember, they didn't start with the current occupant of the White House, right? I think President Obama still continues to hold the title for the deporter in chief. But what has become the shift here has been the level of perhaps publicity, but then leading to fear-mongering that has been coming out of the White House and what that has meant for migrants specifically and for people on the border. The level of concern, the level of fear about what it might be mean both to have massive raids and then to not know what's going to happen to you at the border, to risk coming all the way to Mexico through treacherous terrain that now has become an opportunity for some of organized crime in Mexico to take advantage of the migrants as well, is truly unprecedented in the sense that nobody knows what's going to happen. And by nobody, I mean the migrants. They are just coming because they realize that their options, whether it be in Honduras or Guatemala, or El Salvador are so much worse that they're willing to risk everything that they may be able to, that they need to, in order to try to get to the U.S. And then when they get here, if they get here and they get detained, they are met with a court system that is utterly designed to make it not only humiliating, but really impossible Mm -hmm. for them to get asylum. Right. Now, maybe you could just go a little bit further since you brought that up. And this is, you know, since we saw the beginning of the zero tolerance policy, and I'm glad you also mentioned, Mirna, that this didn't start with Trump. But what we did get with Trump with the zero tolerance policy and the massive separation of children from their parents and families and detention in absolutely what should we say, horrific conditions, but also in places that were never meant to hold people that way. But you mentioned that they were fleeing situations that made it literally imperative for them to go. So maybe you could talk a little bit about U.S. foreign policy and how it's implicated in that wave of immigration or migrants. One of the things that I think we do have to remember for those listeners who were around through all the horrible wars of the 1980s and the role that the United States played in both keeping those wars and in maintaining a level of violence in Guatemala, in Honduras, and in El Salvador as part of the Cold War and this idea that the uh, Cubans were coming through Nicaragua and and the Sandinista government were their puppets. And as as you may recall, the Reagan administration talking about how they would be on our border any day now because all you had to do is just, you know, come up through Mexico. And get to Harbinger, Texas. I'll never forget it. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. And we can all remember those, the battle days. Well, these, what is happening today in many ways is a legacy of, U.S. foreign policy in the 1980s. It is different for each of the three countries, for the so-called Northern Triangle of Guatemala and Salvador 
in Honduras, but it is a legacy in terms of leaving countries that were really utterly destroyed by war with a lot of easily available weapons of war for whoever needed them to pick them up. And then in the case of El Salvador specifically, the numbers of refugees that ended up coming to the United States as a result of the American government propping up uh, a military dictatorship for 10 years, you know, to the tune of a million dollars a year in a war that stalemated with so many people that sought refuge, a bunch of them that ended up in Los Angeles, right in your backyard, yeah. where all these young kids that were coming into a hostile environment organized themselves into gangs to protect themselves from in the neighborhoods where they lived. And then when they start to get sent back, get deported to El Salvador, they already go back to El Salvador with an, a lot of experience as organized crime units. And there, when they go back in El Salvador, they find themselves in a situation in which there is nothing for them there because the country has been destroyed after 10 years of a war that was paid for by the United States. And there are more weapons that you could ever want. And that situation gets exploited then by the growing uh, or by the shifting alliances that the drug organizations from Colombia to Mexico are involved with and find young men with good organization willing to use those weapons to make Central America into a corridor uh, for cocaine coming to Colombia to the U.S. And that turns the situation in El Salvador into a new kind of war, perhaps. Massive violence that then gets exported to Honduras as the gangs get involved in Honduras, and then that gets exported to Guatemala as they also start setting out outposts there. It doesn't get any better when the U.S. supports a coup in Honduras, what, in 2017? I'm trying to remember the date now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was under Obama. Get, yeah. yeah. And you get more instability there. So that, I mean, that combination of factors creates a situation where are people going to go to get away from the violence? One of the places where they're going to go is the U.S. Right. Well, let's switch now to Alicia and welcome Alicia Rusoja. And let's talk about, I guess, not the end point, but after a long trip, many of these migrants arrive in Tijuana and are told that they could apply for asylum in the U.S. And then, you know, either they, in the beginning, we saw them separated from their family and detained and others now being forced to wait in Mexico. And while you and Mirna and others were there a week ago, you had a chance to talk to a lot of the migrants. So maybe you could talk, and to the staff as well, at these severely under underfunded shelters. Maybe you could start to tell our listeners about what the challenges they faced and what you found. Thank you, Susie, for having us. Yes, I would love to speak about that. So we visited several shelters. Some of them sheltered women and children. Some of them sheltered men and children. They were overcrowded. There were staff members even taking people into their own homes because there was nowhere to go. And then the conditions, what we spoke about with migrants and with the staff was that they they were living in uncertainty, which is what Midna was talking about, right? There was not no clear understanding or even, you know, pathway that they could follow for being able to get to the U.S. legally, right? 
And so they were living in underfunded conditions. The children were not being able to go to school or receive any kind of educational support because they were in limbo, right? They were waiting. And then the process for actually, like I said, the process for being able to be seen by a judge was really unclear. There was a lot of rumors, a lot of misinformation. And something that I found really interesting that both the staff and the migrants sort of denounced in terms of it, how outrageous it was, is that basically there's a thing called metering. So the, the migrants have to put their names in on a piece of paper, literally, that before used to be managed by migrants themselves. But then basically the Mexican government began to manage it themselves. And again, this is a, a process that's unofficial. Right? It's not a process that the United States set up. It's not like you go talk to immigration and put your name into immigration. You put it on a piece of paper. The Mexican government starts to manage it. And basically there we start to see a lot of abuse happening. So migrants are asked to pay either 700 between 700 and $1,000, we heard, to be able to have your name be moved up because the waiting right now, again, it's unclear how much, but it's between, you know, some, some of the people we met said, well, our case, my case, you know, that my number will come up maybe in October, will come up maybe in March next year. So they're waiting for so long and they're getting really desperate because, like Mirna said, right, they're running for their lives. So they're not being able to work. They're not being able to go to school. They're not, they're sort of in limbo, right? And so they're willing to do anything that they can to get their names moved up. And that creates a really dangerous situation because it, it's then the question of is this, could this be considered, you know, what, what is smuggling really? I mean, how could you be charging people to have their name be on a piece of paper, right? It's just a great deal of abuse. I just yeah. wanted to ask because this is really a new element, right? Because before that, presumably, they would have been held in detention centers on the U.S. side of the border and, you know, in terrible conditions, but being forced to wait well, on Mexico. I just want to say what the corruption you're describing on the part of the Mexican officials and others there taking advantage of it. Is this sort of like an unintended consequence of what Trump forced on Mexico? Or is this, you know, how do, how do you see that? Well, I think Trump Trump's policy, I mean, I think this is purposeful. Like we spoke about the courts, this is purposeful, right? Trump and the U.S. government has been trying to create a situation where people will be, it will be so physically and emotionally impossible for people to cross that they will self-deport, right? They will, even if the court date comes, they'll say, you know, fine, just send me back, right? And that's impossible, right? If people are fearing for their lives, people, and we saw this in court, people will say, like, I cannot go back. So they just make it so that the situation is just worse and worse and worse in terms of humanitarian issues, right? Like, it's just the policy itself is creating abuse. And when you spoke about how the policy before would have been that the migrants are put in detention centers, I think actually that's part of the lack of information that we have in terms of how historically immigration policy and immigration practices have been, right? There there was a, a time when people could just come in and then make their case and then be able to wait for their case to go through the courts yeah. while they were with their family members, wherever their family members were in the U.S., or be able to be in a shelter, et cetera, right? This whole idea of detaining people and basically jailing them, basically putting them in prison, imprisoning children, right, while they wait for their cases, this is more of a modern practice, and it's absolutely terrible, right? And we know that part of why Trump is separating family members is because it is illegal for the United States to hold children more than 20 days. And so then they say, okay, fine, we'll just separate them so that we can put the kids in foster care or send them off to a family they don't know and further traumatize them, and then we can actually keep their parents in prison, right? And again, like Mirna said, these are private prisons that are making a ton of money, 
off of the right. this humanitarian disaster. And as we know as well, the the people who are benefiting, like who are on the board of this private prisons, et cetera, are, are part of the people who actually designed the anti-immigrant laws and have been supporting. So it, it's all a pretty corrupt situation. It's very upsetting. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. So wait a second. So you've talked about the corruption. And are either of you surprised that Trump was able to force this on AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico, who people have, you know, heralded as an exception to the far right populace elected everywhere else? And what kind of a compromise has it been? Do you know? Well, something I wanted to add, and maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well, is when we were there, we spoke with community activists. So there were shelters and organizations that were providing services, and there were also organizations that were mobilizing and supporting the migrants in in more political ways. And what we learned is that actually the military, Mexican military, has been hanging out in the border, in Tijuana, by the border wall, and checking out people's papers, like anyone, right, asking anyone for their ID to try to find people who are not Mexican citizens. And in one case, we heard of uh, one organization where they were trying to actually enter the shelter, the military was trying to enter the shelter, saying, we want to enter just to see the conditions, but really the military's <laughs> their role is not to check conditions of shelters, right? but they wanted to go in to do the same, to ask for migrants' IDs and then be able to deport them, and that's a, that's a really dangerous thing, right? So when you're asking of, you know, what is Lopez Obrador doing, this is really scary stuff, right? Not only defunding the shelters, but then spending the military's time and money basically doing, you know, immigration work is pretty scary. So let's ask Mirna Santiago. There's no good actors here, it sounds like. And I guess the question, the lawyers who visited the detention centers and were so horrified and reported on this a couple of weeks ago mentioned that of all the children held in these facilities, that 86% of them had relatives in the U.S. And Alicia mentioned that in a prior, you know, administration and time, they did not have to be held in detention while while waiting for their cases to be heard. But now they're in detention, and you've mentioned the private prisons. So I, I guess one of the questions is, you know, is it any better on the Mexican side waiting in shelters and being, you know, subjected to the corruption of bad actors or on this side? And that's a crazy question to ask, but it really is an invitation to talk a little bit more about it. That's a good question. I suppose you would have to ask the migrants themselves, and the, the, probably the views would be, you would find them to be all over the place to the degree that they now know that they're going to be detained if they cross the border and, quote unquote, turn themselves in to Border Patrol. Some are clearly choosing to do that, hoping that that might speed the process a little longer. I mean, that might speed the process because that's 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 the difference. Right. If you stay in Mexico Although most people have Mexican visas, because the Mexican government has been giving has been giving um, migrants visas that last ninety days while they figure out what their conditions are going to be, um, you're still totally in limbo and you're waiting for your number to come up, and that's where this whole question of how do you get a number? Can you buy a number so that you move a little faster? Um, that versus I'll come across the border and have the Border Patrol pick me up. And even though they will put me in detention, maybe that means my case will be heard earlier than having to wait until October or having to wait till next March for my number by crossing, 
you know, through the border. So those are the kinds of choices that migrants have to make and that they have been making. One of the saddest things that I that I heard when we were talking to people on the border was talking to one of the women who is a member of an organization called Dreamers Moms. Yeah. And there are a number of, of people that continue to be deported that we shouldn't forget. So this is one of them. It's like, you know, these are women whose children are maybe U.S. citizens and they are here, but their kids are here, but they're now been deported to Mexico or like the veterans, you know, they continue to deport American servicemen who are not U.S. citizens or who were not documented and they are still in Tijuana. But she was talking about how they have begun to do some workshops with children who are in shelters in Mexico because they are under an awful lot of stress and their parents cannot offer them any kind of uh, stability or any kind of knowledge because they don't have it themselves. So some of the things that they're doing is that they're doing art, they're doing um, puppet. The day that we were there, she was telling us how she they had just had a workshop using puppets for the kids to express themselves as to what you know how they're feeling. Um, what's going on in their lives. And one of the things that they that she was saying is that they have been developing like a little program to prepare those children to be separated oh. from their parents when and if they cross the border into the U.S. So that it will not come as a shock that it is for the children that all of a sudden their parents go in one direction and then they go in another direction and the kids cannot figure out like, why are my parents not supporting me? You know, why am I going in this direction? Why are my parents going in the other direction? So the fact that these women are trying to figure out uh, with support from Mexican psychologists, how to design a little educational unit, if you will, so that children will be uh, not shocked. You know, nobody is prepared for being detained and held in concentration camp conditions, but so that they will know sort of this is what might happen to you when you cross the border. You wow. know, do not be surprised if your parents are taken in one direction and if you're being taken in another direction. And it might be a long time before you see your parents. And she was talking about how difficult that was and how bewildered the kids were just to hear that information. So imagine then what happens to them when they actually find themselves in those kinds of situations. Well, we're running short of time, as I knew we would, and I want to let Alicia talk a little bit about, you know, you both did see courts, but Alicia, I think you got to sit in and look at how these uh, overworked judges, as we hear in the immigration court, that are being run out of the private detention centers actually function or don't function. Yeah, we had the opportunity to sit for many, many hours watching different cases. And one that really stands out to me, and it speaks to the question you asked about what is worse um, and do we have to choose, right, mm -hmm. between detention in the United States or being in overrun shelters or um, et cetera, you know, living in situations that are really difficult on the other side. Um, and so one of the cases that we observed was this trans woman who um, her case came up and, like many other people that day, did not have a lawyer. 
lawyer and was told by the judge, well, it's your fault. You don't have a lawyer. We gave you time to find a lawyer. And so you find yourself here and you're going to have to uh, basically represent yourself because you were irresponsible and didn't find a lawyer. Um, this woman said, well, I tried everything, but, uh, you know, every time I write my name down on this list, again, this issue of lists, there's a list that someone runs within the detention center that is supposed to provide the migrants with some support with filling out paperwork and connecting them supposedly with uh, pro bono lawyers. But this, the, what we heard repeatedly, including in this case, is that this woman had written her name in, had tried to find lawyers, had been repeatedly ignored, had not been able to find anyone to support her in being able to basically have basic representation um, to speak to, to the judge. And then um, clearly this woman was having a really hard time. The, the, the judge kept basically um, saying to her, you're not understanding my questions, your answers are too long, and basically stopped the, the hearing. Um, walked away and then came back about ten minutes later, um, and and meanwhile, while she you know while she stopped the hearing, the woman explained to to the people who were there. Literally, she was just talking to the people who were there, saying, you know, I was just assaulted inside the detention center. My breasts are all purple. I, I'm completely beat up. I've been going to. I've gone twice to the hospital. I've had to go to the hospital, and I'm not being protected. I all all that happened was they moved me from one place to another. But I really want to press charges against the people who have who have been beating me, and I'm really concerned, and I, I used to be, you know, I, I was put before, like, not while in detention center, but she was before on um, uh, psychiatric medication, um, and now was not able to take her medication because she's not given, provided any, any um, mental health support or psychiatric support medications inside the detention. So when the judge came back in and the, the woman tried to explain, you know, the reason why I'm having trouble with the questions and answering is because I'm in the middle of going through a really serious crisis, right? I was just beat up. I need support. I need protection. The judge would just shut her down and say, you know, you're speaking too long. You're not answering, et cetera. And eventually when the, um, the detainee finally was able to say, I was assaulted, please hear me out, the judge said, I have no jurisdiction over this private detention center. If you have any issues or have been hurt in any way, you need to put in a report. And when the detainee said, I did put in a report and it still has gone unheard and I need your help, the judge said, I have no jurisdiction again. Um, and all I can do is for you to fill out, again, a form that's really complicated that can say, you know, you're running away from assault, uh, et cetera, because you're trans. And so, you know, you can fill that out so that we can hear your case about that of things that happened to you back in Nicaragua. But we're not going to hear what's happening to you right now and the assault that you're experiencing right now. I have right. no power over that. I mean, I just could not. It, it was horrific. It was horrific to see this woman in physical and emotional incredible amount of stress and pain and uh -huh. be told, no, we're not going to hear it, shut up, and that's it, right? This is the kind of conditions that people are living in. They're running for their lives and then they're being put in cages and being treated like animals. Absolutely not okay. Just give, now Mirna, I'm going to give you the last word, about 30 seconds only. We've been listening to this Byzantine horrendous legal violence. What are your hopes for, you know, any different outcome? And what do you suggest that ordinary people should be doing to prevent this from happening? Well, I think we need to denounce it in every way, shape or form and every form that is possible in every conversation in every classroom and every workplace any way that we can to say that this is not acceptable, 
that this is not how you treat human beings who are under the stress because they're going to keep on coming. We didn't even get into the question of how climate change is exactly. also a big driver of migration and monocrop agriculture. So that's for another show for you. Yeah, but exactly. And that's what we're going to allowed to be normalized. So the protests, the writing to OPED pages, the writing to your congressman, the writing to the White House. The continuing pressure to say that this is not normal, that this is not acceptable, and that this has to stop has to continue. There's no question about it. You okay. know, take it all the way to the election. Well, and that's it. We've run completely out of time, but I'm so glad we got a chance to put that last part in. And I want to thank both of you for your work, your continuing work, and for coming on the program today to talk about the horrific conditions, the reasons for them. And as you said, Mirna, we didn't get into climate change. We'll do that on another show. I'm Susie White. I've been speaking with Mirna Santiago and Alicia Rusoja, both teach at St. Mary's College and just spent a week at the border. Mirna is in history and director of the Women and Gender Studies program, and Alicia teaches immigrant rights and social justice courses, and both of them concentrate on these border issues. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And don't go away. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to come right back. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Daniel Finn with us. We're going to be talking about Britain, the leadership struggle, Brexit, and Jeremy Corbyn and the Labor Party, and it will become immediately apparent why this is such a relevant conversation. So while the Tories are deciding who their next leader is, and it looks like the next occupant of 10 Downing Street will be Boris Johnson, the Labor Party has its own dilemmas, and one is for certain, over their attitude to Brexit, but also how to deal with the surprisingly effective smear campaign against Labor's left-wing leadership, and in particular, its leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Daniel Finn is joining us to help understand the underlying controversy and why, despite Corbyn's unprecedented efforts to expel anti-Semites from the party ranks, and I should say that doesn't seem to have been any similar move in the Conservative Party, Corbyn's critics will never be satisfied, since there issue is Corbyn's politics itself. And this has great relevance for our own politics. And Daniel Finn, who's deputy editor of New Left Review and has written widely in all the great places, including Jacobin, New Left Review, London Review of Books, joins us to explain his own book. Daniel Finn's new book is called One Man's Terrorist, A Political History of the IRA. And that's going to come out in November by Verso Books. Daniel Finn, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I'm very pleased to have you, and there's a lot to do here. And, of course, I mentioned that, you know, the big issues are Brexit, labor, anti-Semitism, and others. But let's begin with what happened, oh, it's already more than a week ago, the British ambassador to the United States, Kim Darach, or you can, Daroch, resigned his post. That was on July 10th. After secret diplomatic cable messages from him about Donald Trump were leaked to a British tabloid, and that prompted intense criticism from Trump. And the immediate cause then for his resignation was 
apparently that Boris Johnson, the far-right leading candidate to be prime minister, made clear that he had to step down. DeRoche had to step down as a result of the leaks. And it looks like Johnson did this to ingratiate himself with Trump. So I guess this is a way for us to enter into what does he hope to gain by this? And can you explain his motivation and place it in a political context of the what is seemingly the only issue in Britain, and that is Brexit? Yeah, I mean, it was quite a revealing moment because this wasn't the first time that people from the permanent government, if you like, in Britain, senior civil servants, ambassadors, diplomats, and other people who are in charge of managing the state on a day-to-day basis, highly trained, highly educated people, have been openly critical and openly at odds with the leadership of the Conservative Party. The Brexit crisis really brought that to a head. Um, You had a number of people who have recently retired from the top levels of the civil service um, and therefore have the, have the freedom to speak more freely in public than, than they have before. Um, just absolutely trashing Theresa May, trashing Boris Johnson, um, ridiculing them, saying that they're not up to scratch. We had a former head of MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Service in Britain, which until fairly recently you weren't even meant to officially acknowledge the fact that MI6 exists um, in public anyway. It was meant to be a a secret organisation. The former head of MI6 coming out openly and saying that uh, the leading candidates for the leadership of the Conservative Party just are not up to scratch and that they don't have uh, the requisite skills uh, to be in that position. So it's not surprising that you would see people from the Foreign Office, people from the Diplomatic Corps uh, taking a similar line as well. Um, They're particularly, um, particularly... not fond of Boris Johnson because, um, you know, they see him as, I suppose the majority of people who aren't infatuated with the cult of Boris Johnson see him as, as someone who's a political lightweight, an opportunist, um, an intelligent man. He does put on a sort of persona of being a bumbling, clumsy fool, but that's that's, a, that's an act, really. Um, he is an intelligent man, highly educated man, but in terms of basic political skills and political conviction, he has consistently been um, self-serving, short-term in his attitude, um, and, and you know his handling the Brexit crisis illustrates that perfectly, um, going back to the spring of 2016 when Johnson almost flipped a coin to decide which position he would take right. in the Brexit referendum campaign. Um, he wrote on the crucial weekend, he wrote two columns for um, the Daily Telegraph, which he normally writes for, uh, one arguing the case for remaining in the EU and one arguing the case for leaving. And he um, he decided which would be more advantageous for his political career, which would help him ascend to the leadership of the Conservative Party. And he decided to go for leave. Um, subsequently, after the, the the leave vote in the Brexit referendum in 2016, which very few people were expecting, Johnson himself wasn't expecting, um, he was appointed as the foreign minister um, by uh, Theresa May so that he would have some kind of stake and some kind of responsibility for the Brexit negotiations. But his handling of that was, was utterly flippant. Um, Britain didn't have a lot of goodwill from the other European states going into that talks process, but they squandered whatever goodwill they had through um, the actions of people like Johnson. So this act, most recently, of of sacking the ambassador, um, it's in that vein where Trump really, at the moment, if not the only political ally that someone like Johnson can count on, you know, because he's antagonized people in Europe, antagonized people in various other parts of the world. And 
they are political bedfellows in many ways. They share a common right-wing and racist outlook. Um, they have a different political style, but you know the basic prejudices and, and the style of trolling people is quite similar. Right. Um, he even has the sort of hairstyle almost, or a bit British equivalent of it, and, and is seen, at least in the portrayal of him from this side, as kind of a buffoon he'll, you know, shoot from the hip and then perhaps change, as you've mentioned, not only in Brexit, but in other ways as well. And I just saw a report yesterday that talked about his famously drinking at lunch and therefore whatever he says after lunch is not reliable. Yeah, I mean, there's a similarity with, with Trump as well, that he got his leg up in, in politics from the world of life entertainment, you know, whereas yeah. um, for Trump it was it was appearing on The Apprentice. Um, Johnson was a was a panelist on various you know comedy topical comedy shows um <sighs> and he was built up as this kind of lovable rogue the tory who could crack jokes and and he leveraged that to launch a campaign to become the mayor of london um going back uh, 10 or 12 years ago and really did very little of substance good bad or indifferent as the mayor of london he, he used it as a launch pad for his career in national politics. So he spent his whole time going around doing the kind of things that would be good photo opportunities, posing in a high-vis jacket at the opening of some building or other, um, and cultivating friendships with uh, with bankers and property developers and other people like that who could who could fund his political ambitions at a later stage uh, before he went into politics. Um, so yeah, at every at every stage, Johnson in a quite a similar way to Trump has been seen as a bit of a joke, which has sometimes led people to underestimate him. Um, and now it's, it's arrived at this point where um, having um, played a crucial role in one of the seminal political events in Britain since 1945, there's no question that Johnson's involvement in the Leave campaign was one of the factors that got it over the line. He gave it a weight that no other senior Tory would have, would have given it. And having played a crucial role in, in making a mess of the negotiations process, now Johnson is the one who's going to be entrusted by the membership of the Conservative Party um, with managing that crisis, where yeah, you know ahead. we've already passed the deadline. The deadline was meant to be several months ago for Britain leaving the EU, having negotiated a deal. May couldn't get her deal through the House of Commons. She went back to people like Merkel and Cron and the other representatives of the EU, and asked for an extension, and that extension was, was given till 31st of October. And one of the senior EU negotiators said at the time, don't waste this time. You know, we're giving yeah. you a few few extra months. Use it profitably, use it productively. And what's happened since then, that was, um, you know, it's been April, May, June, and now most of July since then. Um, all that's happened is that May tried to get her deal through again. It failed. She resigned. And now we've gone through this charade of a Tory leadership contest um, where, you know, the, the people who are making this decision are a tiny, tiny fraction um, of the British population and people who have some extremely right-wing racist views, you know, it, it's a remarkable imbalance, whereas over the last few years there's been all kinds of talk about so-called extremists joining the British Labour Party uh, under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, and there's been all kinds of stories, lurid stories, holding them under the microscope and presenting them as some kind of sinister threat to British democracy. In the same period, um, the Tory membership um, is composed of people who are completely out of step with majority opinion in Britain. You know, the opinions that have, uh, opinion poll surveys that have been done at the Tory membership um, 
they hold profoundly racist views. Uh, they see Muslims and Islam as a threat to the British way of life, whatever that might be. Um, all kinds of reactionary opinions across the board on social and economic and cultural issues. Um, and they're gravitating towards Johnson because... Um, because he shares those views, or at least he's willing to, to pander to the people who share, share those views. And there's also a sense among the Tories that he's their great political asset. Um, they think he's the guy who can work a bit of populist magic. He's got the gift of the gab. Uh, he's got charisma. He's got media gravitas. Mm. Um, and he can he can dig them out of their hole. Now, there's good reason to think that a lot of the, the shine has been rubbed off Johnson in the last few years compared with Back when he was the mayor of London, he had quite good um, personal ratings for a politician because he hadn't really done anything. You know, he hadn't done anything at a national level that would antagonise people or, or make them think ill of him in, in any particular way. And the mayor of London doesn't really have that much power anyway. But since then, he's, he's gone into national politics. He's well, done things that polarise opinion about him. So his, his opinion has been tarnished. The fact that, you know, the skill set that you need to be the prime minister especially in a moment of crisis like that, it's not just a question of having, you know, a certain fluency or the ability to perform in the media. It also requires a bit of savvy, a bit of uh, political nous, the ability to build coalitions when people over. And he's demonstrated very little of that in his career to date. This is a great background and, and helps us understand a lot, especially given that you've laid out how little actual input from the majority of the population has had in this decision, Daniel Finn. But let's move then to how Jeremy Corbyn's quest for an electoral victory for Labour fits in here. And of course, you situated a lot of uh, Boris Johnson's politics and Tory politics in the position of the British economy. And this is really what yeah, I guess you could say was the background factor in the victory of Brexit, even if it's totally surprised everyone, including, it seems, Boris Johnson himself. But this is a real issue, as you've written in your New Left Review article and elsewhere. It's a real issue for the future of the country and the position that labor takes is going to have a huge impact on its prospects. And so here we have uh, the, pro- uh, the possibility of Jeremy Corbyn, left wing uh, leader of labor, uh, moving into uh, let's if we were super optimistic, saying that conservatives will have a short life and there will be a general election. But can we can you talk a little bit about how the politics of Brexit is affecting Corbyn and his chances and where he uh, you know where he stands? Well, it's a very difficult issue for them to navigate because it splits the Labour Party's electoral base. Um, going back to the last two general elections, the one in 2015, the year before the Brexit referendum, and the one in 2017, the year after. In both those elections, um, the Labour electoral base split roughly two to one between people who voted Remain and people who voted Leave. Um, And that remained constant, even though the vote in 2017 was much larger in 2015. In 2015, they got 30% of the vote, and in 2017, they got 40% of the vote. Um, So the greater number um, of, of Labour voters um, supported Remain and would have preferred Britain to stay in the EU. Uh, but, um, but there was also a crucial minority there, approximately one third, um, who voted Leave. So if you antagonise people at either end of that spectrum, um, it's, it's going to be difficult for the Labour Party to perform well in elections. So that's one factor behind their, their policy on Brexit. But there's also 
you know, there's there's wider considerations um, about what the most desirable outcome from this process would be. Uh, Labour did campaign for a Remain vote back in 2016. Um, Corbyn campaigned under the slogan "Remain and Reform." Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that the European Union uh, is deeply flawed. Um, and he was very critical of, of many aspects of the European Union, in particular uh, the recent treatment of Greece, um, but that it was better uh, to stay in the European Union and try to change it, or, or at any rate that leaving under these circumstances, under the leadership of people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and Nigel Farage, wasn't likely to advance any kind of progressive cause. You know, that was the argument that, that Corbyn and other Labour politicians made, but that argument wasn't successful. You know, the, the Remain camp as a whole was unsuccessful. So then the referendum result comp- created a completely different political context. And it wasn't a credible position for a Democrat um, to just turn around and say, we should ignore this referendum result. You, you do get people saying, um, in defiance of political reality, oh, this referendum, it wasn't legally binding, it was just advisory. And strictly speaking, that's true, because... The British Constitution doesn't have any place for referendums. So, in theory, the House of Commons could have said the day after the referendum, oh, that didn't work out the way we were planning. Let's just forget about that. Right. But the political reality, of course, is that that was never going to happen. And all of the major parties, um, with the exception of the Scottish National Party, agreed to hold this referendum, and they agreed that the result would be binding, and they didn't include any you know, special conditions that there had to be a supermajority or a quorum or anything like that. So it wasn't a credible position for the Labour Party after June 2016 to say we're going to ignore this. And so the position that Corbyn guided them to, and which is generally agreed upon by, by other people in the party who wouldn't be his political allies or ideological co-thinkers by any means, is that we accept the referendum results, but we aren't going to give a blank cheque to Theresa May and the Conservatives. It doesn't mean that they have the freedom to negotiate any kind of Brexit deal that they want. We're going to hold their feet to the fire. Um, We're going to insist that we don't want a Brexit deal that results in a deep economic recession. We don't want the opportunity for a bonfire of social rights, which is what some of the the more right-wing Tory Brexiteers were were openly calling for. Um, And we don't want it to be used as, you know... um, an opportunity for the hard nationalist right to, to smuggle in all kinds of other uh, quite reactionary ideas. So that was the position that they took, and it did chime with public opinion. Um, you know, at, at the time of the 2017 election, a, a slight majority of people who had voted Remain the previous year said they thought the, the referendum result should be accepted. Um, now, what has become difficult for Labour in, in the last six months or so, that position has become more and more difficult to hold, is, is really because of Theresa May and the Conservatives, their botched handling of the, the negotiations. Um, that idea of a Brexit deal that wouldn't be um, calamitous, that would be a so-called soft Brexit, as it's known, uh, that wouldn't really have a, a damaging or um, harmful effect on, on our everyday life in Britain, um, people have started to lose faith that that can actually happen because, you know, Theresa May kept pressing on with this deal, which was, you know, pretty hard in, in terms of the spectrum of, of possible outcomes. But the the Tory right wing and, and beyond them, Nigel Farage's new party, the, the so-called Brexit party, they wouldn't even accept that deal. 
and they said this this is still a betrayal of the 2016 referendum. We'll we'll settle for nothing less than the hardest possible Brexit deal, or even what's known as as no deal Brexit, right, which means right. basically crashing out without any sort of formal agreement with the European Union and the relations between Britain and the rest of Europe being regulated by the World Trade Organization and, and other bodies like that. Um, so people in the in the broad Remain camp um, have become more and more pessimistic that you can have any kind of soft Brexit, and they've polarised in one direction. Uh, and meanwhile, the Leave camp has polarised towards the, the hard end of the spectrum, and it's become more and more difficult for people like Corbyn and the Labour Party to try and steer a middle path. Let me just interrupt for a second, uh, Daniel Finn, because I want us to get to the other issue before we run out of time. And this, you know, as we know, Brexit can take up everything, but it certainly, as you're indicating, has put Jeremy Corbyn in a difficult situation as he tries to, I guess, in a sense, bridge the various positions, also keeping in mind how many people have joined the Labour Party, and especially from the younger generation who've been more remain than leave, uh, and with the rest of uh, the British working class who got hurt so much, uh, not by uh, joining the European Union, but by, uh, well, neoliberal politics as a whole. But I want to move into the second way that Corbyn has been, his chances have been affected and he's been nearly derailed. And that's by the huge smear campaign that paints him and his followers as anti-Semitic. And there's been a media frenzy about this. You wrote about it in Jacobin uh, magazine. And it's uh, it seems that um, the whole of the British establishment, including uh, the mainstream media and even the Liberal Guardian, have been trying to use anti-Semitism to bring down Corbyn. But it hadn't it earlier seemed to be all that effective. And now it seems that it's really harmed him. So I'd like to ask how that has played out and how it's the electorate has been affected by it. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole controversy about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is best seen as a symptom. It's a symptom of the general hostility towards Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, uh, which spans the Conservative Party as a whole. It includes the right-wing faction in the Labour Party, um, which is out of step with the membership, but which still has a very strong position in the Parliamentary Labour Party at Westminster. Um, and then in the wider media, the great bulk of media outlets and media commentators in Britain are aligned either with the Conservative Party or with the right wing of Labour. Um, and then the public sector broadcasters, in theory, they're meant to be neutral and non-partisan, but really they're understanding what it means to be non-partisan is the consensus position between the Tories and the Labour right. So ever since Corbyn became uh, the Labour Party leader in 2015, um, all of those elements have been grasping around for whatever lines they can use to attack him. And there was a brief pause, a pause for a matter of weeks after the last general election, because Labour did surprisingly well. You know, it was their best performance since the early days of Tony Blair, um, a big increase in vote share, um, really took people by surprise. And there was a few weeks of journalists saying, oh, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and rethink some of our assumptions and um, and look at Corbyn and the movement behind him in a new light. Uh, but once that period of um, paying lip service was over, really they redoubled their hostility to Corbyn um, because now that it was seen that he he could be effective, he could be an effective political leader, he had the potential to win an election and become prime minister, it was all the more important to oppose him. Um, so every line has been tried out over the years, from calling him a stooge of Vladimir Putin, um, to calling him a supporter of the IRA, to calling him a misogynist, to, to this, that and the other. Um, 
And most of these attack lines have had a fairly short shelf life. They get a couple of weeks maybe in the media and and then they fade out because no one can really take them seriously. Um, and maybe they're revived again in a year or two. But this is the one that has um, has been most persistent, uh, the accusation of anti-Semitism. And it's, it's important to be clear here because one of the traps that people have fallen into is when um, Labour MPs who support Jeremy Corbyn or left-wing pundits or people like that, they're asked, do you accept that the Labour Party has a problem with anti-Semitism? And they're not told what is the nature of this problem. Right. Obviously, if you, if you had even one single member of the entire party who had anti-Semitic views, that would still be a problem. Um, you need to quantify it. Is it a major problem? Is it a minor problem? Is it on the margins or is it something that pervades the whole party? And most importantly, is it something that is tolerated and encouraged and abetted by the leadership or is it something that they actually discourage and try to root out? Now, every... Um, objective examination of the evidence shows that, number one, um, the prevalence of anti-Semitic views in the Labour Party is, is small and marginal. Um, it's less common in the Labour Party than it is in British society as a whole. Exactly. It's less common than in, 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 in the other major parties. And the Labour leadership has made very significant efforts um, to revamp its disciplinary processes and to um, to deal with, with some of the genuine cases. But that hasn't uh, reduced the controversy at all because, you know, the, the most strident critics, for them it's never really about genuine, it never really has been about genuine concerns about anti-Semitism. Right, and I just want to interject one thing here because we only have like four minutes left and I want to get to it. But obviously this is something that they could try to do here with Bernie Sanders too, even though he's Jewish and his parents are Holocaust survivors. But it's much more, as your article states and is obvious, that it's really about criticism of Israel, which they're trying to equate with anti-Semitism. But I'd like you in the last four minutes to kind of talk about what that means in terms of the real uh, criticism of Corbyn, which is, you know, they're worried a bit that he won't be a toady to the U.S. That's put very, you know, blunt. But it's his foreign policy agenda, is it not? Yeah, that's that, that's the main reason for the hostility to him. It's not the, the domestic economic program. I mean, Labour has um, a social democratic economic program, which would be it would be very welcome if they could come into power and implement that, and it would make a real difference to people's lives. Uh, but it's not revolutionary by any means. It's certainly not a program to abolish capitalism. It's Corbyn's foreign policy outlook that people really dislike and find threatening because frankly nobody has ever been this close to power in Britain who has such a consistent track record of opposing the foreign policy consensus in relation to Latin America, in relation to the Middle East. Now, if you look at Labour's party programme, um, Corbyn has had to compromise. You know, uh, formerly he called for withdrawal from NATO. He called for Britain's nuclear weapons arsenal to be scrapped. Um, that's not part of the party programme. But even within those limits, even if Britain was part of NATO, even if Britain has nuclear weapons, there's still quite a bit of um, freedom of manoeuvre for a prime minister. And especially when it comes to a sudden international crisis, um, it depends on, on what are the basic beliefs and instincts of that leader. And since Corbyn has become um, leader, you know, the traditional British Labour stance, especially under Blair, but not just under Blair, of subservience to Washington, um, has been broken with. And, um, you know, everything from Trump's would-be coup in Venezuela to the war threats against Iran, um, Corbyn has been consistently critical of that. Um, and in particular, he's been very critical of Britain's support for and participation in the, the Saudi war on Yemen. Um, and they don't like that because so much of the British foreign policy consensus, like the American foreign policy consensus, it relies on people not challenging it. 
it's so brittle and it's so indefensible once you hold it up to um, the scrutiny of daylight that it's best if it's just left unsaid, unspoken. Everyone agrees on it, but we, we don't talk about it. It's like the elephant in the room. Uh, and then when you have a situation like, as you saw in, in the United States, with Ilan Omar confronting Elliot Abrams at one of the foreign policy committees and saying, why should we listen to you when you're responsible for genocide in Central America? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, the reaction to it, it was, a, it was a, as if she'd suddenly started cursing and swearing. Um, but, you know, once you actually challenge someone like Elliot Abrams in that way, um, the whole house of cards comes toppling down. And, and it's been a similar story with, with Corbyn. Um, so, see, so, yeah, really the... The dislike of his of his outlook when it comes to Israel is just a proxy for the dislike of his wider foreign policy outlook. That they know um, people who tend to be critical of the uncritical alliance with Israel, um, they don't stop there. They tend to be critical of the foreign policy consensus and the dodgy alliances across the board. They also tend to be critical of the alliance with Saudi Arabia, for example. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. We're going to have to leave it there. But I think you've given us enough, Daniel Finn, to be very suggestive. And I'd like to come back to this, to discuss this with you as we see this unfolding in British politics. We get closer, you know, to the time that Jeremy Corbyn could assume the mantle of Prime Minister of Britain. But I want to thank you so much for your analysis, for your article that's coming out in the new New Left Review 118. It's called Cross Currents, Corbyn Labour and the Brexit Crisis, and your article also in Jacobin magazine, which is about Labour Party anti-Semitism and Corbyn. It's much more than that. And Daniel Finn is the deputy editor of New Left Review, and he has a new book that's coming out in November by Verso, and it's called One Man's Terrorist, A Political History of the IRA. Daniel Finn, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.